Hey, welcome to Retail Intel. A few weeks ago, Ashley Casey, who is Director of National Accounts and our expert on emerging trends, was the keynote speaker at Urban Land Institute's September meeting in Cincinnati. Take a listen as Ashley presents her thoughts on exciting new retail concepts and how they could potentially have an impact on the shopping center of the future. Good afternoon. How's everyone doing? I thought no one would sit here, so I'm like really grateful that you guys are over here. This is my first Urban Land Institute event. Um, I hope to be a part of several more. But from what, what I understand, there's not a lot of folks in retail real estate in here. So is, who here is in retail? OK, this is more than I anticipated. Um, <laughs> well, the good news is that um, none of us, or most of us in retail, are not rocket scientists. Um, so hopefully this conversation can resonate with you know everyone because retail real estate really um, speaks to consumers right and we're all consumers here when it comes down to it so it's my hope and belief that this discussion today will resonate with you no matter what industry that you're in okay so, so I'm Ashley Casey I'm director of national accounts for Phillips Edison I'm here today to discuss innovation in retail which is one of my favorite topics because I've been involved in retail for almost half of my life I started my journey in retail at a Hallmark store in a regional mall. Does anyone remember this? <laughs> and I'm not referring to regional malls, I'm referring to Hallmark stores. Um, so I started in commercial real estate when I was 22 years old, right when I graduated college in 2012, beginning my career as an analyst for a mall developer based out of Georgia. I transitioned to a leasing role with that firm in 2014, and then I leased tertiary mall units until 2017, and that's when I started my tenure with Phillips Edison. I was hired at Phillips Edison as their Emerging Trends account leader, and in that role I researched emerging retailers and sought out their real estate decision makers, and it was my goal to integrate their concepts, emerging concepts, into our portfolio of 330 shopping centers throughout the entire country. I also researched growing micro and macro trends that were shaping the retail industry, some of which I'll address today, like experiential retail, food halls, the blurring lines between um, e-commerce and bricks and mortar, and distribution centers. And last year I moved into an expanded role with the group, and now I oversee relationships with national retailers based west of the Mississippi. I manage our portfolio reviews with those concepts also in efforts to integrate them into our portfolio. I've also maintained the research aspect of my initial role, and so I continue to explore what's shaping the shifting nature of the retail real estate arena. So I've been fortunate to spend a lot of my time in roles that allow exposure to my favorite parts of this industry, and that's the relationship building and um, the evolving nature of the industry as a whole. No contact day or year is the same, in my eight short years in retail real estate, I've already seen a massive evolution. Consumers have become less interested in simply buying goods or paying for a service and more concerned with having fun, engaging experiences. And more than ever, consumers want greater choice, personalization, and participation throughout their shopping journey and with all of their brand interactions. Retailers and therefore landlords and developers are now obligated to innovate, to survive and thrive in today's retail climate. 
And today I'd like to spend some time discussing what major changes are being implemented and the impact it has on us as landlords, developers, and even consumers. So in the commercial real estate industry and even as regular browsers of BizNow or the Wall Street Journal, we may be starting to believe that the idea that retail is dead is true. We're constantly inundated with headlines like this. And if you can't read them, I mean, they're very conflicting. Um, who says stores are dead? These five retailers are investing billions of dollars in their expansion. Um, what do you know? Retailers are figuring it out. But then again, the retail apocalypse is postponed, not canceled. The continuation of the retail apocalypse, retailers closed thousands of stores in 2018. One day we hear that e-commerce is bound to be the last player standing, and the next day or even hour we read headlines about massive store openings or successful new retail concepts. The National Accounts Team, which is the, part, the group that I'm a part of at Phillips Edison, we're constantly pursuing growing retailers. And so I'd just like to share a few numbers that we've heard throughout our conversations with these growing retailers. Now you might notice that Hallmark stores were not on that list of uh, retailers. <laughs> They're a concept that has actually closed several stores, but this is due to a lack of innovation. Um, the truth is that retail is not going anywhere. So according to recent in-depth research, 5.2 companies are opening stores for every one company that's closing stores. The reality is that the wave of store closures seen recently is being driven by just a handful of companies. Just 16 retailers are responsible for 73% of retail store closings in the past year. And the bottom line is that retail is just evolving. And in many cases, the evolution has already happened. As developers, landlords, retailers, and consumers, we're adjusting to the shift and experiencing retail in an exciting new way, which we'll explore now. The concept of live, work, play that many urban downtown areas provide has flourished in the past few years, even in suburban communities. Traditional retail centers are becoming more of what I'd like to call community centers. They're places where you can shop, meet friends, work, and just spend your free time in general. So I have a question for you all. How many of you work remotely, some or all of the time? And let's define some of the time as at least two days per week. I want you to all know that you all failed my question. <laughs> that's okay, that's okay. So I, I fall into this 24%, but 24% of you said that you work remotely two days a week, but not at a retail center. I'm seeing 73% don't work remotely at all. They're in a traditional retail center, I, I would assume at least four days a week. And none of you said that you work two days a week or more in a retail center, which is really wild to me based on the statistics I'm about to tell you. But I fall into this 27%. I work from my home most of the time. Although sometimes I'll check out a Starbucks or something if I just need some, some other sort of mental stimulation or just to hear that blender going in the background when I'm on my conference calls. Someone answered my question right. I got a, a, I'm seeing 4%. Who, who works from a retail center? Did you just do that to just appease me? <laughs> <laughs> So like I said, um, I'm personally a member of that 30%. Remote employment has grown by about 140% though since 2005, and that's nearly 10 times faster than the rest of the U.S. workforce. Additionally, over 40% of employed U.S. workers work remotely at least some of the time. In response, co-working spaces are taking up shop in retail development locations alongside residential, food and beverage, and traditional retail in order to provide a higher degree of convenience to the public. 
Coworking presents a viable solution for vacant retail space by decreasing vacancy and driving additional foot traffic with a guaranteed daytime population. Added foot traffic may also help revitalize the center by attracting new retail tenants. Shopping centers are often placed where people live and more and more people are now working where they reside. Therefore, co-working office space is quickly becoming a strong component of the typical retail center. An interesting iteration that I read about maybe a month ago is with this concept called Showfields based out of New York. This company, it's, it's not a co-working company at all, but they give startups and online retailers a chance to have a physical footprint within their store. So they do four-month leases within their store to allow them a quick way to connect in person with um, potential customers. But they've recently, this is in New York, they've recently opened the fourth floor of their 15,000 square foot building in New York as a co-working space that is completely free for anyone to use without even so much as a fee for Wi-Fi. It's about 1,000 square feet and they have a 1,500 square foot outdoor terrace and it has room for about 40 people. So what is that, like 0.0001% of the population of New York? But the founder of Showfield said that the idea for integrating co-working into their space came from a desire to have um, a sense of community within the store. So they've also included a cafe and an event space within the location. And even Office Depot is including co-working space within their locations. And most of us are familiar with the leader in the shared office space realm, WeWork. I've just learned that there's not one here in Cincinnati, which is like really baffling to me because they have 300 locations. There's one literally in my backyard in Atlanta. I can walk to it anytime. But they plan to increase their real estate footprint year over year for the foreseeable future. So the co-working trend is one that I anticipate will continue to grow in retail developments and within actual retail stores at an increasing pace. So now regardless of whether you work from home or from an office, Lunch hour pretty much happens every day, and dining options are taking a much larger space on the retail development stage than in years past. As spend shifts from transactional to experiential food offerings, food and beverage is growing in importance to retail real estate. And in some regions of the country, the amount of space property in properties is, that's dedicated to F&B is forecasted to reach over 20% by 2025. And implemented correctly, food service drives shopper traffic, dwell time, spend, and overall sales growth. So I have another question for you all. How much more likely are you to visit a retail center with great food and beverage options as opposed to a retail center with minimal options? So food and beverage has become, as we can see, we have almost 50% of you are more, much more likely to visit. But it's now a pivotal part of our shopping center mix. Most of today's fastest growing retailers are food and beverage concepts. I think it showed Chipotle, Jersey Mike's, uh, First Watch, and I'm thinking like Shake Shack has got huge plans right now. Cadoba is a company that we're working with internally um, on several projects as well. And that's just to name a few. But total global food service spending is projected to grow by 13% over the next few years, resulting in about $360 billion in incremental value. A real estate head for Panda Express, which that company is expected to grow by 100 units domestically throughout the next 12 months, recently said this, which I thought this is a really cool quote. We need to make the experiential quality of centers key to their future success, giving people a reason to go. Make the centers entertainment venues. Landlords need to be focused on food 
and need to be prepared to deliver exciting and adventurous concepts to meet the demands of the consumer. A partnership between brands and landlords is crucial, both with a common goal. But we can expect restaurant options to grow immensely as we move forward. In fact, some landlords, I'm thinking GGP in particular, which owns tons of malls throughout the country, they have hired real estate professionals specifically dedicated to just food and beverage tenants. And we've kind of toyed with that idea internally with national accounts as well. I want it to be me because it's growing so fast, but I um, haven't brought that up to my boss yet. Food halls are another really cool concept that's Pont City Market, um, which I'll get to in a second. But um, they've been getting a lot of traction for about five years or, or more. They're a hot trend at the moment, particularly in the US. In fact, we have about 100 of these projects underway, literally as we speak, throughout the country. There's a little bit of worry that it may become an oversaturated concept. But they can be a great way to freshen up a food service mix within a larger destination center. They're often replacements for food courts. And if you want to know the difference between a food hall and a food court, please ask me later and I'll try to come up with a good answer for you. Um, but they provide the opportunity to address all restaurant categories across all price points. They can be social houses, um, local operators, or premium casual, and they can even um, expand to fine dining. And for large spaces, many of these concepts can also help landlords fill vacant or struggling department stores. Some great food hall examples, like I said, Pont City Market in Atlanta. It's in a very old, historic Sears distribution center. They have residential on top, and then a great rooftop terrace where you can play mini golf or play arcade games, drink as much as you want, and then go downstairs and eat all the food and buy all the things. Another one is Italy Markets, which you may have heard of. They're throughout the country. They just put a new one in Vegas. There's two in New York City, I believe. They're very cool artisan, Italian-inspired markets. And then the Source in Denver, which is located in a repurposed 1880s brick foundry building. So restaurants, whether full service or quick service and food options, transcend the capabilities of Amazon and e-commerce. They allow customers an experience that they can't find filling their virtual shopping carts, but only their real physical shopping carts or stomachs. As I mentioned, today's customer craves experiences and interaction, and food service is as much, if not more, about the social aspect rather than the actual food and drinks, like we were just talking about. So also adding to the synergy of a great shopping center today and in the future, visitors will be able to knock out their fitness and health goals before or after they grab lunch with their friends or colleagues. In efforts to make health and fitness concepts more convenient to the customers, these concepts have been moving into areas where people shop, work, and play, retail centers. Another question, how many of you are members of gyms in retail centers? So our biggest answer so far is 40% say they have a gym membership, but it's not in a retail center. I'm a member of two gyms, actually. One is Anytime, because I do a lot of traveling, and Anytime is throughout the country and another boutique fitness concept in my hometown called Oxygen, and it's also in a four-level retail center. But it's funny that you know most people are not, their gyms are not in retail centers. So gym memberships in the U.S. have increased at an annual rate of about 3% since 2013, and they now total almost 61 million members. And the number of these fitness tenants in shopping centers has more than doubled. Um, in 2008, it was about 6,200, and now it's almost 14,000. 
And in the new retail real estate environment, fitness centers, when carefully leased, can function in much of the same way that former anchor stores did. They're concepts that draw a consistently high volume of people. But most of this depends on local circumstances, sometimes depending on the submarket, footprint, and size of its customer base. A fitness location is sufficient by itself to function as an anchor, but in other cases, it functions as a great co-anchor with additional uses. And in the latter, um, a fitness center can work with other tenants to create a successful collaborative and collective synergistic shopping experience. This transformational shift is being driven by several factors. Um, demographic changes. Millennials find the social aspect of fitness centers to be most important, and they're also the most likely group to actually use these centers. Um, and baby boomers are utilizing fitness to preserve their health. The rise of selfie culture is real, and it's also driving the boom in fitness concepts. Social media is a force that we really haven't seen in years past, and it really is truly important to people to look good online. And weight management overall is influencing the growing fitness market. I think the statistics say around 35% of the U.S. population is overweight and the need to curb this problem is a powerful spur in the fitness industry. In a similar vein, healthcare concepts are becoming more and more common in retail settings. Healthcare is also moving to meet people where they are. Um, spending is expected to grow by about $2 trillion in the next decade. And this is a result of a couple factors. The high level of U.S. employment and the accompanying employee-based or employer-based healthcare insurances, and the growing and aging U.S. population. And the aging population is really having a direct impact on healthcare and um, doctor visits, medical expenses. They dramatically increase as you age. On average, people over the age of 65 spend more than five times on healthcare than their younger counterparts. And a few examples of the tenants growing in this industry that we at Phillips Edison have actually worked with recently include Stretch Lab, which offers one-on-one -on -one assisted stretching. And this concept is like blowing up. They're owned by a group called Exponential Fitness, which also owns Club Pilates, Cycle Bar, a concept called Row House. But yeah, they have huge growth plans for this concept. American Family Care, which is a franchise urgent care use based out of Birmingham, Alabama. DaVita, which is a kidney care facility, and it's growing in both traditional like medical developments and non-traditional locations for them, so retail concepts as well. Aspen Dental, which is growing by 75 units in the next year. And America's Best Vision, we've executed two deals with them in the past year, um, and they're growing by about 40 units this year. And Concentra, which is an occupational health facility with over 500 locations. And at the end of 2017, there were about 3,000 medical concepts in shopping centers. By the end of 2020, it should be around 4,000, according to research. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, and this word is probably going to just get pounded in your brain, but today's consumer craves experiences and entertainment. Their experience in any customer-oriented development should be fun. The amount and variety of entertainment offered by retail centers has skyrocketed, over the past decade, profoundly changing the industry from both the perspectives of the landlord and shoppers alike. Entertainment tenant square footage has grown by nearly 45% over the past year in non-mall and open-air centers by nearly 70%. So 45% in malls, 70% out of malls. But this growth has been particularly explosive in one category called active entertainment. And this is concepts like escape rooms and laser tag. 
and it's the fastest growing segment. This category grew by nearly 600% at non-mall locations and about 450% in mall locations from the beginning of the first quarter 2010 to the end of first quarter 2019. And y'all, this number is staggering to me, but the number of escape rooms since 2014 has exploded. In 2014, there were about two dozen, according to statistics, and now there are over 2,300 throughout the country. I don't know if you've ever, I've never been to one, but like, I know a bunch of team building activities happen in these escape rooms, but apparently they're pretty cool. We have bad axe throwing. It's a Canadian-based concept, and it's literally just throwing axes. We did one with our office for a Christmas party last year. It's actually a lot of fun. Punchbowl Social, they have 18 open locations right now, and they're planning to grow into seven metro markets by the end of 2021, seven additional metro markets. Um, and then Launch Trampoline Park, they're taking old vacant department store spaces. Final question, what, if any, experiential concepts have you visited in the past year or plan to visit in the near future? I've seen five people at least have said Top Golf. Have you all heard about the new Top Golf concept? They're shrinking their, I mean, you know they're huge, but they're shrinking their footprint so that they can go into suburban <coughs> markets, which is really cool. My hometown is Augusta, Georgia, which is relatively small, definitely a lot smaller than Cincinnati, but we're, we're getting a Top Golf, is what everyone's saying. We're also getting a guitar center. <laughs> we're thrilled about it, but they're going right next to each other. Um, but yeah, so they're going into smaller towns like that too. So someone said 16-bit. These might be a few ideas for your next outing, and a lot of you said these. We have Tokyo Kitty Karaoke Bar. It's a Japanese-inspired karaoke bar. I actually passed it. It's right down the street um, on the way here. But anyway, those sorts of concepts are exploding. I just visited Penn's Mechanical. It's four levels of just fun and drinks, and on the top they have a really cool rooftop, and you can see the city from there and then 16-bit, um, which we call barcades. I imagine that's probably a pretty common vernacular for that sort of concept, but these, are, these sorts of concepts are just exploding in retail centers in efforts to make them more fun and engaging for the consumer. But maybe this one also hits close to home. I've heard that you guys are getting a new Kroger. Kroger on the Rhine is what I've heard that it's going to be called September 25th. I did a little research into it. They're going to have a walk-up window from the street to the Starbucks where you can literally just order your coffee from there. They also have a food hall on the second level and just like meeting space throughout. They're actually calling the grocery store a relaxing experience for customers who want to linger. And I would definitely consider this an experiential retailer with the event space, meeting rooms, food hall. I mean, it's, it's definitely an innovative concept. So, Kroger, though, has had a physical, or a physical footprint for about 100 years now. I think they were 1883 or something along those lines. But with the emergence of e-commerce over the past decade, there's been a lot of discussion about online shopping's true place in the retail world. So physical retail embodies a social and tangible experience that Amazon has not yet created. Online retailers are embracing this concept by embracing the aspect of shopping by investing in brick-and-mortar retail and actual storefronts. And at the end of last year, there were 600 digital first stores throughout the country, and that number is only projected to grow. Some examples of these types of stores um, right here in Cincinnati are Warby Parker, which is the obstacle, um, the obstacle wear retailer, and men's clothing line, uh, Bonobos. 
Landlords are using pop-up stores to fill vacancies, while retailers are using the temporary locations to test innovative concepts. So you likely have heard of Casper. This is the mattress company that will deliver straight to your door and has partnered with Target. The group opened their first brick and mortar store um, in late 2017, and that was actually at Pont City Market in Atlanta. And the store included bookable nap pods um, and staged bedrooms. It was actually really, really cool to visit. So that's kind of an example of a pop-up store. They're drawing us in with their novelty and media hype. They produce about $10 billion in retail sales and are definitely becoming a highly sought after amenity in retail developments. Brands from fashion, art, food, and household goods are all utilizing the power of pop-ups to project new creative retail ideas. Other recognizable brands using this concept are Adidas, Amazon, Lululemon, Wayfair, and meal kit service Blue Apron. So retailers aren't the only ones, though, encouraging temporary shops. Property owners are integrating pop-ups in response to this growing retail trend. Some examples include Simon Property Group's The Edit. Simon Property owns tons of malls throughout the country, and The Edit is a concept that they're introducing into a lot of these malls in the common area. It's generally about 3,500 square feet, and they rent to retailers, and they, they say they make it as easy as booking a hotel room. They rent space on a rotating basis to brands who will create temporary displays for their products or services with staffers on hand to talk to shoppers. Washington Prime Group is a similar sort of landlord, um, but they've launched a similar concept also called Tangible, which curates internet purveyors on a rotational basis, allowing for kind of a dynamic treasure hunt type experience. And even city governments are taking advantage of the popularity of pop-ups. Some towns are allowing businesses to temporarily lease downtown space. And these initiatives have proven successful with notable increases in downtown sales and foot traffic, turning the downtown district into sort of a festival-like environment whenever these pop-ups are in operation. So again, today's retail customer craves experiences. And while the integration of pop-ups and clicks-to-brick concepts into shopping centers have a direct impact on bottom line, they also create a sense of community and engagement with shoppers, and they ultimately result in a returning market. While pop-ups and new omni-channel concepts create excitement in emerging retailers, both new and existing con concepts are implementing cool toys and strategies inside and outside of their stores to increase customer engagement, and they're doing that in the form of technology. So as consumers expect a more integrated and interactive shopping experience, technology will be utilized by retailers to promote their products and educate the consumer, while providing a more experiential aspect to the whole shopping experience. Augmented reality will show you products location through in-store navigation to interactive mirrors. They'll show you how different patterns and styles will look on you. They'll also show you product information, complimentary accessories, product recommendations, and customer reviews at a moment's notice. We have a few examples of how technology is already shaping the way that today's consumer is shopping the physical retail space. Mobile application technologies such as the Kroger app has shifted how we shop for groceries. So rather than spending an hour inside of the Kroger store, you're sitting at your desk or at your home and you're choosing your products online and then you're picking them up at a designated time at the click list stop. We have robots in stores at a Lowe's 
and you can go up to it and ask it where a product is. You can ask it questions about products and it will give you an answer right there on the spot rather than having to check all the way around the list for an employee that may not even know the answer anyway. A mirror at Sephora, I believe. And I've actually tried this mirror. They have some kinks to work out, but they'll get there. <laughs> it's like, have you ever been in the Target self-checkout lane and looked up at the the, the camera and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> not me, not me. Well, that's kind of how it is. But anyway, you can try on um, different lipsticks or eyeshadows, mascaras, and you don't actually have to try them on. They'll just show you what it, what it would look like on your face. But I don't suggest using it, <laughs> um, at least not right now. On the other side, this is what we would call a magic mirror. And this is in a, a fashion retailer's dressing room. And with this mirror, you can try on different um, clothing items without actually having to go through the hassle of trying them on. So you might see how a different fit looks on you, how a different color or pattern might look on you without actually, I mean, sometimes trying on clothes is just a workout, you know? So you don't have to do all that with this magic mirror. And those, those aren't quite as unflattering as the Sephora mirrors. The Walmart Scan and Go technology remotes. Essentially, you scan what you want throughout the store and then you pay using um, your mobile device and you just leave the store without ever having to actually communicate with, um, with an associate. And so today's customer is, is picky and they crave convenience. And the victors in the retail space will be those using every new advancement to benefit and cater to their shopper. So all of the changing aspects of retail that we've just discussed are contributing to a retail evolution. Brick-and-mortar retail and e-commerce are merging in such a strong way that we've actually generated a name for it. It's one of our favorite and latest consumerism buzzwords, and that's omnichannel. The physical aspect of retail is not going away, but rather shifting and changing. And it's becoming more exciting for the consumer, so for you and me as consumers. So e-commerce and growing macro trends are changing the way we shop. But perhaps the most important macro trend is the experience economy. It's time. Shopping in the physical retail space has and will become more about creating memorable experiences in a way that online shopping just cannot. Brick and mortar retail has become less focused on monetary transactions and more about connecting with the consumer and consumers connecting with each other. Location and store quality are becoming more and more crucial. The overall message here is that these concepts, both on the store level and the development level, that cater to experience and enjoyment will be the winners in this fast-changing retail landscape. So thank you all so much for your time and attention. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Great job, Ashley, and thank you again for listening to Retail Intel. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me directly at mconway at phillipsedison.com. Please check back for more episodes soon. Thanks.